close. I especially want to thank uh, just Andrew for leading these guys, and also want to thank him for listening to the voice of God this week because those songs um, so tie in to today's message. So I appreciate you uh, you doing that for us. Um, we like to mix in discussion with teaching on Sunday mornings. So if you're an adult leader or an intern or a student that just wants to take a stab at leading a table discussion, come grab a piece of paper off the stage real quick. This will be your, actually not that one, that's my talk. Here we go. There's the stack. Don't fight over it. And the way this is going to go this morning, a little bit different than usual, I'm going to uh, kick off with a couple of questions here in a little bit. And we'll do the first couple of questions. Then we're going to, I'm going to yell at you for like 25 minutes, all right? And then we'll answer some more questions at the very end. So we'll kind of put most of our discussion at the end of the talk this morning, but that shouldn't be too much different than what you're used to. We've been doing a series uh, the last couple of months called uh, Why We Should Believe. We actually started the series back in September. We actually titled the series back then, Why We Don't Believe. Looked at questions of the faith. And now we're looking at why we should believe. And so we've been looking at these, these topics, um, defending the faith, and why you should believe in Jesus, why you should love and follow after Jesus. And the first couple of weeks we went over a few topics. Go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, we looked at clues for God. We looked at Romans chapter 1. We looked at how all of creation says something about God. And so we looked at clues for God that we see in our midst, clues for God that we see in creation. We also looked at the topic of prophecy, how much of what happened, all of what happened with Jesus was foretold hundreds if not thousands of years before he actually came and fulfilled those prophecies. We also looked at the problem of sin. We talked about how um, there is this problem called evil and sin that everyone agrees exists. Even the atheists would agree with us there are certain things that just are wrong with the world. But only Jesus Christ deals with the problem of sin. No other world religion deals with that issue whatsoever. Everyone else says, just try to be as good as you possibly can and hopefully it will work out for you in the end. That is not the gospel. Nothing else solves the problem of sin like Jesus Christ does. And then fourthly, we talked about religion versus the gospel. We showed how religion, every religion says, work your way to God, but the gospel is God coming down to man and incarnating himself here and inviting us to himself. And it's based on grace. That was our last discussion back in December. And so today our topic is going to be the cross. We're talking about the cross today and how the cross, not just the story that you might already know, but we're going to talk about how it actually relates to your life and how it gives you the power to forgive like nothing else imaginable. We're discussing the cross today. Before we dive into this topic, though, I want to ask you a couple of questions for discussion at your tables. You've got questions one and two, and go ahead and discuss questions one and two at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, what I want to do this morning, 
what I want to do this morning is the rest of our time is going to be spent answering uh, these two questions. And uh, we're going to look at a passage just a little bit. Before we dive into our passage, I want to describe to you just how brutal the cross really was. Not just for Jesus, but for really any criminal back in that day. The cross in that time was the most creative way to kill someone that they could possibly imagine. The Romans actually would try to create ways to prolong the agony. And so what they would do is before someone actually got on the cross, the kind of person that was typically killed on a cross was the worst kind of criminal. This might be someone who committed treason in, the, in war. This might be someone who murdered someone, was a thief, rapist. The worst of the crimes might lead to someone being killed on a cross. It was reserved for the worst kind of criminals. Now, before the crucifixion, there's what's called scourging. This is when they would take what's called a cat of nine tails, a whip with a, a handle on it, and they would literally beat the victim. 39 times because it was thought if they went to 40, the person might die. So they beat this person 39 times with these lashes. Now, they would typically have the criminal chained to a post with both arms raised above their head. So their arms are outstretched, making their back nice and tight so the whip would have its full effect. They would also have two men, not just one. So in case one got tired, the other one would not grow weak In the whipping. To make sure the whipping had its full force, they'd have two men whipping this person from side to side while they're up against this post. This was not just a whip, but this whip had hooks. It often had glass and bone attached to it so that whenever it would hit the person's skin, it would literally rip flesh off the person's back. Now, after all of that, the criminal would often have to carry the crossbar, part of their cross, which often weighed more than 100 pounds, carry it to the cross itself, and many would would actually pass out or even die on the way to their their scheduled death. Uh, The Romans perfected ways to prolong the agony. In uh, our world today, we find ways to make execution quick. We have things like lethal injection, the electric chair, Um, And the purpose for that is to be somewhat humane in how we put someone to death for a crime they've committed. But back then, their whole goal was to make it as prolonged and as horrible as possible. They had the opposite goal of what we have today with execution. Now, oftentimes the person would just die from blood loss, but if they survived past a certain point, they they would not just die from blood loss, they would actually die from suffocation. What would happen is while they're on this cross being hung up by nails and ropes, it'd be difficult to breathe. And the person would have their chest pulled so tightly, they would often suffocate over time. And so what the person would do is they would actually push up on on the nails in their feet so they could breathe better. In fact, some people would actually just intentionally slouch so they would quicken their death. And so what the Romans did, the Romans actually put a seat under some of the people that they killed so they could not slouch. So they had to stay up the entire time and they wouldn't die too quickly. Their whole point was to prolong this thing as long as possible. So it was death by suffocation oftentimes. Now, this might last for some criminals anywhere from four hours to nine days. 
Nine days. Imagine anything that's painful for nine days. But being on a cross for nine days. Fully aware of what's going on around you. This was not just physically painful, but it was emotionally painful and embarrassing because the criminal was often completely naked for everyone to see. This would result in the person becoming incontinent, going to the bathroom in public, obviously, blood, sweat, everything just flowing down the cross. Everything. This was often done in a public village square, not in private, so everyone had access to view the criminal that was being put on a cross. You can imagine, this is how it would work. Imagine you walking into the mall here in Temple, and there being an execution right there for everyone to see. That's the equivalent of what we're talking about when it came to execution by the cross. This would often uh, allow the crowds to spit, to mock, to curse the victim. And so you can imagine this, that if, if someone that you knew was murdered by the person on the cross, you would have the chance to go and look this person right in the eye and tell them while they're dying what you think about them. And you can imagine if, if this kind of thing were to happen in somewhere like New York City. Uh, think of probably the worst enemy in the last ten years of New York City has been Osama bin Laden. Imagine bin Laden being placed in the middle of Times Square on a crucifix, fully alive, where people can come by him and, and curse at him, spit at him, mock him for putting their families through so much pain and misery. This is what crucifixion was under the Roman Empire. Now, if you can imagine that, uh, once they were dead, there was often no burial. They had lack of dignity in their death, but also in their burial, there was no burial. Oftentimes, they were many times left for the buzzards to come and just pick apart the bones, pick apart the flesh. Eventually, bones might fall to the ground, and dogs may just come and take them off as a chew toy. That's how grotesque and gruesome Crucifixion was for many criminals in the Roman Empire. Now, this was the death of the worst criminals, like thieves, rapists, murderers. But it was also the death of the God that we worship. It was the death of Jesus. Innocent, blameless, righteous, holy. You see, our view of the cross is, is way too tame. I think most of us, when we think about the cross, we picture... The Easter version. We picture the sunrise behind the cross, the grassy knoll, little nicely placed rocks, little flowers coming out of the ground. We forget that the cross was a bloody mess. And, and that's what Jesus died on. And so the question again, why did Jesus have to die? Why, why couldn't God just, just forgive and not put his, th- his son through so much torment and so much suffering. Why was all this bloody mess necessary? We're going to find out in Romans chapter 5. Turn there if you have your Bibles. Romans chapter 5. We'll start in verse 8. Today's passage sheds some light on these questions. We'll start in Romans chapter 5. Uh, Verse 8, I know this is a heavy topic for the new year, but happy new year, alright? Romans chapter 5, verse 8, here's what it says, 
It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the question is, why did Jesus have to die? I'm going to give you several points to kind of look at this passage. The first one is this, to demonstrate his love for us. That's number one, to demonstrate his love for us. You see, guys, love is always action. You guys don't question that when it comes to human relationships, do you? If if you had a boyfriend or girlfriend and they said, yeah, I love you, but never showed it through any kind of action, you would say they don't love me. If you had parents that said they love you, but they never show it, you would say they don't love me. They don't show that they love me. Love is always a demonstration through action. We would also agree that um, that this would be that, that, that giving your life for someone else is the greatest love act imaginable. This is why almost every movie that you see that Hollywood produces, at some point in the film, there is the theme of someone giving up something or giving up their life for someone else. The most powerful movies that are created have this theme in it. And do you know why that theme resonates with you? Because that story has been written on your heart by God. God God has written the gospel in our bones. So that whenever you hear the gospel, you go, yes, that's so amazing. How that, that story just is powerful. This is why those kinds of movies sell and make lots of money. Because at the root of that is the gospel. Someone giving up their life in an act of love for someone else. It's the gospel at work. So the question is, what does it mean that Christ died for us? We say that, we say that all, we always say things like, yeah, Christ died for us on the cross. We throw these words around, but what does it mean that Christ actually died for us? Here's what it means. It means that Christ died in your place. He didn't just die on the cross just abstractly. He actually died in your place. So the things I just read to you that Jesus went through on the cross, believe it or not, those are things that you and I would deserve if it wasn't Jesus taking your place. That's a hard thought, isn't it? It's hard to think that you and I are that evil and sinful, that we would deserve something like that. But it's true. Because if you and I didn't deserve those things, then it wouldn't have happened to Jesus. Why else would God spare no violence, no brutality on his own son, if you and I didn't deserve those exact same things? You see... um, Here's the deal. We often forget that the penalty for sin is death, don't we? We forget that that's what we deserve. We deserve that. Um, recently, uh, the last couple of years, I've, I've heard just several stories of people that are from a distance, but people I, I know of and people I hear about that have gone through just death and suffering. And um, 
a few people that are kind of more prominent in the Christian circle, the preachers and so on, that are going through cancer and those kinds of things. And um, these are guys that have small kids like me, have awesome wives like me, and and I've just been blown away at how I've reacted to those things because I feel like in me there's this thought of just like, why? Why, God? Why does that guy have to be on his way to death? Or why does anyone have to be on their way to death? And I, I really felt death kind of affecting me in that way where um, almost kind of getting like doubtful towards God or almost angry at God for you know, allowing us to die, especially people that are in the middle of their life, fathers, mothers. It doesn't seem fair. But I think in the middle of me thinking all those thoughts, I was reminded a while back, I was reading the scripture, that, that yes, we, we all deserve physical death. We all deserve eternal separation from God. But God has spared us in His Son. He's demonstrated His love for us in His Son. This also means that He didn't just die for our sins, He, just, he died because of our sins. That your sin, my sin, actually put him on the cross. Death is a consequence for our sin. And fortunately, the death of Christ spares us eternal death, but we still have physical death as a consequence for our sin. This verse also says that Christ died for us when we were sinners. What that means is that you were powerless to save yourself. That means that you were feeble, you were weak, you had no power to overcome sin. Only Christ could have gained you that victory. I want you to think about this question. What, what kind of person would you give your life for? What, what kind of person can you think of in your life would you actually give up your life for? I would guess that many of you in this room have a really short list. Right? Maybe your, uh, your best friend, uh, for you girls, maybe Justin Bieber, I don't know. Um, but just think about who is someone that you would give your life for, okay? My list would be maybe at least three people, my wife and my two kids. You guys, not so much, okay? I love y'all, but I'm not sure if I was faced with a gun and someone said, okay, it's either you or them, I'd be like, them, I got kids, right? I got kids, I've got kids, so, but think about it. Who is someone that you would really give your life for? My guess would be that that list would be really, really short, and you'd have some really good and even some selfish reasons why you'd give your life for those people. But here's the thing with Jesus. Jesus, his list, it is long. And it, and it includes lots of messed up people. Many people, everyone who does not deserve his grace, his love, that's his list. Christ died for us when we were sinners. I want you to think about your worst enemy. Okay, not just like you personally, but think about as a nation, our worst enemy. I mentioned bin Laden. I've also think about Saddam Hussein, who's actually been executed by now. But he is someone that our nation, the last 20 years, those two guys, probably the two most hated men by our nation. Now imagine this. They're about to be executed, both of them. And someone asks you, if you want to take their place, what would you do? Would you die for them? Would you do that? 
and leave a, a legacy of forgiving two of the worst criminals that our nation has ever known? Would you do that? But here's the thing. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. While you and I were sinners, while you and I were his enemy, he died for us. This is why there should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. This is why there should be no such thing as pride in the Christian life. Because, why? You didn't deserve any of this, and and God gave you this in His grace. He demonstrated His love towards you. The second reason is this. Christ came and He died for us to justify us. Now this word justify is a legal term. You think about a courtroom, this is a legal term. It means we are declared righteous by God. And what that means is that whenever God the Father looks at you, He sees the perfection of His Son. He sees the righteousness of His Son. To justify means to declare someone righteous. And He doesn't just see you as a good human. He sees you as just as righteous as His own Son. Perfect. Holy. Blameless. Even though in the moment right now you are not those things, He sees you as those things because He sees you in the same way He sees His own Son. So if you're someone who lives in guilt and shame because of things you've done, and you're a Christian, I have good news for you. That guilt and shame is from Satan himself or from your flesh. It is not from God. That's been taken care of on the cross. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Christ. The third reason is this. He died to save us from God's wrath. This is a hard statement. He died to save us from the wrath of God. Now, we live in a day and age where God's wrath is not popular, obviously. Um, if you were to say, to someone, if you said to someone on the street, hey, how would you describe God? They would say love. They would say um, he is He's your creator, maybe. He's, he's a God of love. Uh, Maybe they would say he wears tie-dye and smokes peace pipes and loves everybody. I don't know what they would say, but that's what they might say. But here's the deal. God is a God of love. But he's also a God of anger against sin. He's a God of wrath against sin. And he is those things because he is a God of love. He has to be both. He can't just be just the God of love and not be a God that is angry about sin as well. He has to be both. Now, you might say, okay, why is God so angry? He is angry because of his love. Now, uh, here's the funny thing. Some people get angry about God's anger, right? They say, well, how can God be so wrathful and angry towards sin? That's not right. I'm angry at God now. I mean, what hypocrisy is that, right? I'm going to get angry at God because of God's, of God's anger towards sin, right? So we, we can't sit there and, and, and impose our rules on God when it comes to how he deals with sin. We can't impose our desires on God as to how he deals with sin. I'll say right now that there are people in this room right now that you don't take God's wrath very seriously at all. You might say you're following Christ, but your life doesn't show it. You might say that you're, you know, want to be a Christian, but you're not doing anything to try to follow him or try to show love towards him. And so I would say that many of us in the room here, we don't take God's wrath very seriously. 
we don't really understand that what was happening on the cross, that he's taking out his wrath on his own son, because you and I deserve to be there, and by his grace we weren't. That's God's grace at work. The fourth reason why God came to die for us is to reconcile us. The amazing thing about this word is this word reconcile is a friendship word. This is about friendship. This is not just about some distant God who accepts you and some distant God who just kind of wipes the slate clean. This is a God who is intimately connected to you. This is a God who is involved in your life. This is a God who wants to know you. This is a God who wants to be in a relationship with you. If you think about a husband and wife who get divorced and then get remarried, the word they would use is reconciled. They've been reconciled. Their relationship has been brought back together. This is the picture of our relationship with God. That God, not only as, our, as us being his enemy, not only has he wiped the slate clean legally and justified us, but he actually wants a relationship with us, an intimate relationship with us. That is amazing to me. God goes above and beyond. For some of you in this room right now, because of maybe past sin or even current sin, you feel like God's distant. You feel like He's not approachable. You feel like you can't really talk to Him. And you need to know this truth right now, that you've been reconciled if you're a believer in Christ. You have been brought back into a relationship with Him, one that is close, one that is intimate, one where He offers you true friendship with the God of the universe. You don't need to see God as distant any longer. You can see Him as a close, close friend, someone you can pray to, someone you can talk to, someone you can count on. Now, all of this, the four things I've described to you so far, all of this leads to One last thing. Look at the verse. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things I've described to you leads to joy. Leads to joy. And so not only has this God forgiven us of so much, and not only have we been forgiven and we don't have to have His wrath taken out on us for our sin, but now we can find joy in that same God. We can find joy in Him. Notice it does not say that you find joy in the things that He gives you. Notice it does not say that you'll find joy just in His blessings, but you'll find joy in God, in Him. That is the point. Now, what I want to talk about now is, what does all this mean for us? We can talk about all this theology, all these big words and whatnot, but what does this all mean? mean for us in our everyday lives. I want to take you back just briefly to this picture of the cross that I painted for you at the beginning of this morning. I want to ask you a question. How do you, how do you react when you see blood? Can you think of the first time that you ever saw blood in your life? Uh, your first big cut. I don't mean like a scraped knee. I'm talking about the time where you gashed your forehead and you went to the mirror and you were like, ah! right? The time that you were like, Bleeding profusely, you could see it pulsing out of you with the rhythm of your heart, you know, and it was just horrible. Blood all over the carpet. Um, think about that time in your life. Maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was a friend and you were the bystander, 
and you're freaking out over seeing this blood, I'm one of those people that I cannot watch those Discovery Channel deals where they like show surgery. Can you guys watch stuff like that? I, I cannot watch stuff like that. And here's why. Because whenever you and I see blood and we see gore, we just we turn away. We just, oh, I can't look at that. It makes your stomach turn. Now, here's why that is. I think that, that Jesus was allowed to go through what he went through on the cross and make it so bloody and so gory. Because blood is supposed to horrify us, right? Blood is supposed to make us feel queasy. God allowed Jesus to go through that on the cross and, and have such a horrible view of brutality and so horrific because he is horrified by sin. So the same way that you can't look at, at, at blood and gore, God can't look at sin. In the same way that blood horrifies us, God is horrified by sin. And so when we ask the question, why did Jesus have to die such a horrible death? The answer is this, because sin is horrible. Because that's what sin is. That kind of death on the cross shows how serious sin is. Because of our sin, someone had to die. But not just die. They had to die the worst death imaginable. Death is serious. That's why no one really laughs at a funeral. Death is a serious deal. It's the most serious thing in the world. Because God was trying to communicate to us that sin is serious. But here's the problem. Most of us don't take sin all that seriously. We just don't. We take His blood for granted. If you need, listen to this, if you need to be reminded about how serious God takes sin, look no further than the cross. If you want an image of how God looks at sin, look at the cross. Look at what happened to Jesus on the cross. If that doesn't remind you how serious sin is, then I don't know what will. Now, I want to talk about how this impacts us and how we forgive people. Here's the question I want to answer. What does the cross teach us about forgiveness? Here's the first point. Forgiveness is costly suffering. I want to give you a a picture of what I'm talking about. Let's just say that you had a friend who stole something from you, something really valuable. Now you have two options. One, make them pay for it. Or two, pay for it yourself, right? Those are really your only two options because the cost doesn't just vanish into thin air. If you have something that's valuable to you, they steal it from you, you can forgive them and pay for it yourself to get a new one. Or... Make them pay you back. Those are your two options. Now, with that picture in mind, either way, someone has to pay. This is exactly what Jesus did for you at the cross. There was two options. One, make us pay for our sins. Or two, that he took the cost onto himself 
and forgave us. Those are the two options. This is why people say things like, whenever someone wrongs someone else, this is why people say things like, I'm going to make them pay, right? Because it feels like there's this debt that when someone wrongs you, that there's this debt that they now owe you, and you either try to either forgive them, let it go, or you try to make them pay through revenge. Those are your two options. Here's the definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is this. Forgiveness is refusing to make someone pay. There are many ways we try to make people pay. We withhold relationship from them. We talk bad about them behind their backs. There are many ways to make someone pay in a relationship. But forgiveness is refusing to make someone else pay. I'll be uh, really honest with you. Recently, um, my my brother, I have, a bro- I have two older brothers, and they're both back on the East Coast, and uh, one lives um, in the same town as my parents. And the middle brother um, has just always struggled spiritually. He just always has. And uh, he got married um, out of college, went to med school, and he and his wife... Um, had a baby around the same time we had our, our first son, Landon. And in uh, med school, during med school, also during his residency program, um, he got involved in an outside of his marriage. Uh, he had an affair. And uh, just devastating. I mean, right in the middle of his wife being pregnant, um, he did this heinous thing. And, uh, um, of course, I was upset. I was just, as a father, as a new father, I'm just livid. I'm angry. And so he came to visit us during that time, and I said, hey, come visit us. We can kind of talk and just sort of pray with you and, and counsel with you and so on. So he came to visit us at our house here in Temple, and, uh, and we, had some, we had some difficult conversations because I still saw him doing some of the same patterns that he was doing when he was in the affair. And I had some really hard words for him when he came here, but... They weren't words to just get it off my chest. They weren't words just to make him feel angry at me. They were words that I felt like need to be said to kind of shock him out of his apathy and shock him out of his sin. And, but he took those words that I said, and he basically hasn't spoken to me uh, in over a year. And he is not, he's withholding relationship from me. He is... You know, saying things that, well, you know, David, he did me wrong. He didn't support me. He didn't love me through this. And I'm trying so hard to reestablish the connection with him. I've called him. I've emailed him. I've written letters to him. And I've gotten no response. And everything in me just wants to make him pay now, right? Everything in me wants just to say, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm done with you. But what God is showing me is that forgiveness is refusing to make someone else pay. But here's the reality. Forgiveness is costly, right? It hurts. It's agony. And forgiveness can feel like death, right? Forgiveness is to bear the cost yourself. It hurts and it feels like death. That's what forgiveness is. The second point is this. Forgiveness might feel like death... But it leads to resurrection. It leads to resurrection. You see, forgiveness leads to new life. It leads to new life. Revenge feels good at first, 
but it leads to death. Forgiveness feels like death, but it leads to life. You might say to yourself, well, how can I forgive when I don't feel it? Here's how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is a decision. And only then do you begin to feel it. Only then. You see, when you understand the cross, that Jesus bore your sins, he took them upon himself, only then can you do that for others. Only then. The reason why Jesus had to die like a criminal, the worst kind of criminal, is because he died for us. He died for criminals. Criminals against God. People who have blasphemed God's name. That's us. So here's why you should believe. Here's why you should believe in Christ, why you should follow Christ. Because of the cross. Here's why. The the story of the cross is not a story that anybody would have made up. The story of the cross is one that no one would have just created on their own. No human being could have thought up a story that great. Not Hollywood, not anybody. And so if someone asks you why you believe, you can say, I believe because my God took the worst crime and turned it into the greatest act of mercy the world's ever known. What I'm going to do right now is, uh, it is really late, man. It's late. I apologize. But, um, I'll kind of leave it to each table how you want to handle this. If someone has to go, you can leave. But, um, we have four questions at your tables to discuss. If you, need, if you have time to discuss them, go ahead and discuss them. Um, if not, um, we love you guys and we'll see you on Wednesday. But that's your choice if you want to stay at your tables and discuss further or not. But, we love you guys. Have an amazing, uh, We'll see you on Wednesday.